AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to that radio wonderland that is known as Spooky South Coast, where the strange and unusual is the not-so-strange and pretty normal for us. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, fascinated by a bottle of water. Did you know that that stuff comes in a bottle now? Yeah. You know, and, and you can appreciate this being being a chemist and, and performing experiments all day, but I think one of the most fascinating things I ever did in my youth when it came to science was when I actually made water. A little hydrogen, a little oxygen. Yeah, actually it was uh, actually two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, to be exact. <laughs> And you know what? It tasted like crap. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I, I don't know uh, why it tasted like crap and what possessed me to drink it. But it just—it was not very good. Maybe it's because uh, I made it in Wareham, so it was probably by the time I made it, it was already contaminated with E. coli. <laughs> Sorry, can we get political on this show? Sure, we can. Actually, we talk about the paranormal here each and every Saturday night. We like to have a little fun with it. If uh, you're new to the program, welcome aboard. Uh, you can always check us out online at SpookySouthCoast.com. We're there all week long, posting up on the forum and sharing your emails. And, and we have all the past shows archived up there. Matt, I noticed that you got a bunch of the uh, the latest shows uh, posted up onto the archive page on SpookySouthCoast.com this week. Yeah, I think we're uh, up to February. Just about. I have so. one more from January. And then uh, it's pretty I've, good for us. Yeah, I've been lagging <laughs> behind the podcast. Well, I thought I was going to have like the next you know month or so off on Saturday nights. I thought we were going to be stuck not being able to broadcast because of college basketball, and that I would slowly release the podcast, you know, to kind of tie people over, you know, make sure that you know if we do one or two a week, then they have something to listen to and they won't miss us that much. But as it turns out, we may actually be able to stay on the air through March Madness. We may be able to stream live on SpookySouthCoast.com and WBSM.com through the magic of whatever it is that we do here with these buttons. You know, Matt, Matt will figure all this stuff out. Uh, I'll have him handle all that magic. Uh, but basically what we'll do is we'll just go live over the stream so that... So that means our on-air listeners actually have to tune in via their computer. They will because on-air will be carrying the basketball, but they can't carry the basketball over the stream because yeah, you know, the NCAA charges yeah. you for an Internet stream. And so what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to come in either here or the other room and uh, just basically pump everything through the Internet, which means uh, we'll still be able to, in some fashion, record the show. Uh, we may have to have Craig's help with that if he's listening. Craig, we may be calling on you for a few weeks uh, <laughs> for your expertise in that regard. But uh, the, the important thing is that we can keep the show going. We cannot lose weeks to basketball games, to Red Sox games. You know, It seems like with this process we should be able to stay on the air 52 weeks a year. Well, I applaud the station for at least making some sort of attempt to accommodate us. I, I mean, they, they actually like us. I don't know why. Yeah, I, you know what it is? Because we don't break anything when we come in. Yeah, and we clean up when we're done. We're pretty yeah, good about yeah. cleaning up. But uh, I think part of it, too, is uh, a number of fans out there, uh, led by Craig, actually wrote letters to the station, sent emails and faxes and, and phone calls, whatever, and said, you know, we don't want to lose our spooky South Coast during the break. We want to make sure that, you know, while you're running college basketball, we can still – we would have been happy to just do podcast-only shows. I mean, we, we've certainly done that in the past, and, 
and uh, it's a different type of forum. But on our end of it, Matt, you know, being the, the producer, you got to say it's a lot easier to be able to come into the studio, oh, yeah. you know, use their phone system. That's like the main problem that we usually have when we try to record at home is is being able to patch the phone calls through. Yeah, but you know that's because we don't have any money to buy equipment. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody has any used radio equipment, they'd like to donate. Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Sooner or later, we'll just build our own cave, and we can just broadcast out of there. I, I never understood why, uh, you know, George Norrie and Art Bell and all them, they say they broadcast out of a cave. Yeah. It's like, caves are hard to broadcast out of. <laughs> pretty soon you'll be able to do it all from your BlackBerry. Pretty, <laughs> We pretty much run the show between <laughs> your laptop and my phone and, and a couple of iPods. You know, that's all it takes now to run the show. It, it's really just this thing. This whole wow. phone system. That's really the whole reason we come in here. But uh, tonight we are going to be talking. Now we're going to take a little bit of a detour from the paranormal per se. And tonight we're going to talk about horror, horror culture, horror movies, uh, just in general. You know, what's going on with horror, uh, the state of the world, the way that it is. Is horror thriving or is it declining? What's going on? Uh, I tend to think that uh, when you have a situation like we have now in the world where uh, – you know, the economy's not so great, and there's tension, that kind of stuff going on. It's a good time to kind of revert into some of these horror stories. You know, they're kind of like the worst that can happen. Just remember back in the 50s when, you know, there was always the threat of nuclear war, and all of a sudden we had all these movies about giant ants and giant frogs and... Giant people. Giant, Yeah, giant people. Giant whatever. I mean, giant, giant was big in the 50s. Yeah, no pun intended? Yes. It was, well, pun intended. <laughs> okay. You know, right down to the James Dean movie, giant. You know, it was Attack of the 50-Foot James Dean. So I don't think that was about a giant. But, uh, you know, it's it's a good time to really kind of escape to some of these stories, and, and that's what we'll talk about tonight. We're going to talk to a couple of people who are helping keep horror alive. Mark Nelson, who uh, is part of the program Saturday Fright Special. Check out their website, SaturdayFrightSpecial.com. It's a, it's a TV show, a, a, a monster host, a horror host TV show, kind of on the idea of our friend Penny Dreadful. Only they run some different films than Penny does. And we're going to talk to them about their program and about an upcoming event that they have that's helping to keep classic horror films alive. And then a little bit later on, we'll talk to David Colton, who runs the website RondoAward.com, the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. Now, voting is only going on until next week, March 21st, which is, what, next Saturday night. So you only have until then to vote. So get to RondoAward.com to place your vote. But we'll talk about some of the categories later on with David uh, and some of the, the television shows that are furthering the field these days, some of the films that are coming out. Uh, Matt Costa, I know we've talked about... Uh, you know, some of these horror movies in the past just on a daily basis pretty much. And yeah. one of the, the the first category is Best Movie of 2008. And I just want to tell you that uh, in the category, along with such great, great films as The Dark Knight, uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Iron Man, WALL-E, you know, within all these films is also Cloverfield. <laughs> so... <laughs> We'll, we'll have to get into that with David and find out how the hell did Cloverfield make that list. Maybe there's something in it we're not seeing. And we'll also talk with you all night long about horror, your favorite horror films, favorite horror magazines, stories, horror you grew up with, of course, in this area. Creature Double Feature was the, the big part of you know what our lives were 
growing up. I mean, Saturday morning, you'd watch your cartoons. Then at noontime, you'd better flick over to Channel 56 for a couple hours uh, because it's going to be Creature Double Feature time. So we'll talk about that as well. And if you'd like to to chime in, 508-996-0500, Those numbers are posted right up on SpookySouthCoast.com. And if you'd like to email us, you can do that as well, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. We also recommend that if you're, you know, sitting around listening on the computer maybe or or just uh, chilling out at home with the radio on, go on to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the chat tab at the top of the page there, and jump in the chat room and, and have a discussion with other people listening to the show. I mean, that's what it's there for. We're, we're here to, to be not just a, a program but a community. We want to bring people together and give them something they can talk about all week long. And uh, I think that, as we're going to hear a little bit later on uh, in the, the haunted headlines and in the week and weird, you know, the paranormal is, is definitely increasing in interest level, uh, again, probably due to the state of the world today. But uh, there is a lot more discussion going on. Matt, I know, Matt Moniz, that you're involved in the scientific field, and, and people in that field know of your involvement in the paranormal field. Are you getting asked more questions about your work in the paranormal by other scientists these days? Actually, yeah, I have. And it's, I mean, contrary to popular belief, a lot of scientists are interested in the paranormal. I mean, there's the public face that you get with them, and then there's, you know, the close peer rapport that you'll have inside the lab. Uh, You know, you get some of these guys that will come up to me and it's like, what have you found lately? Show me what, you know. Mm -hmm. And they're intrigued, but they're they're just more concerned with... um, you know, keeping it so that they can, you know, look at what I get, but they don't want the same association yet because that there's still that slight stigma that's attached to it. But, uh, you know, everybody does agree when I show them what's there and what I've gotten, what other people have gotten. It's like, yeah, there's definitely something to this. I really wish we could, you know, get money to do this. Well, tell them there's a million dollars on the line if they can come up with a way to reproduce it in the lab. That's... That's one of the things that aggravates the heck out of me. Yeah, how do you reproduce something in a lab that's very rare to occur in nature to start with? Well, I, I've, already, <laughs> I've already told you my theory on that. Let them build the lab in a haunt, very haunted location. Uh, at I, least, at least it's one possible step toward. I mean, it still doesn't guarantee that it's going to happen. Better chance in order to make, you know, a ghost in a laboratory, you essentially got to kill somebody in it. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't well, agree with that. I don't think it has to be a dead person. So, I mean, this is a, okay. a subject for another I'm night. But you going know. under the prem- current premise and you know of what a ghost is, well, using, I, using that as the framework. I, I don't want to. I want to get off on on a tangent here. But let me ask you this: if if we know that there's certain factors that uh, contribute to a, a haunted location, such as you know, whatever quartz. Oh, uh, yeah, we can reproduce all of that. That's all well and good. Can you make a small-scale, say, model of a haunted house with all these factors built in and have it, you know, amplify activity? Not if the activity isn't there. You know what I mean? No matter what you do, it's not going to – I don't know. It it still has to come out and play is basically the way it goes. But, hey, one of my favorite horror films of all time is based on the premise of of a a paranormal occurrence at a home, so – we can talk about that. I actually want to talk about that a little bit later on because I have the Blu-ray version of Poltergeist, and I want to talk about some of the stuff that's going on with that and how, you know, here it is 25 years later, and they, they still have that Pizza Hut edit in the film. 
Drives me crazy. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. I paid like $30 for the Blu-ray. I want the Pizza Hut scene. <laughs> and, of course, uh, if you'd like to buy my former DVD copy, it's on eBay right now because I don't need it anymore. Well-worn. I watch that. Uh, I can't, it's one of those things like Back to the Future. If I'm going through the channels and it's on, I'm done. I'm just going to sit there and watch it for the rest of the night. Kind of like with The Godfather and some of the other movies. You know, I don't, re- I don't really do that with a lot of films. It's just it seems to be like Back to the Future and, and Poltergeist that really reel me in. Maybe Last Action Hero. Ernest Goes to Camp. No. No, no not Ernest Goes to Camp. Now, Ernest Goes to Jail. Now, that's... that's scared stupid. I'm not scared <laughs> stupid. I don't know about it. I don't think I've seen that one since I started the Bijou down the street. So, all right, well, we'll talk about all those films. We'll talk about more with our guests tonight, David Colton and Mark Nelson. So uh, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we'll talk with Mark Nelson about... Saturday Fright Special, his program, and the upcoming film screening they have of a, of a classic. And it's a, a unique twist that they're being able to show, a special print. So we'll talk about that and more, as well as take your calls here on Spooky South Coast. Lock the doors and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are going to be talking about horror all night long. What scares you? What's the scariest movie you've ever seen? We'd like to hear it. We'd like to hear about it. If we haven't seen it, we'll go out and rent it. Or uh, we'll have Matt Costa buy it and he can add it to his collection. <laughs> I swear to God, I'll, still, I'll give you back your Hellraiser. I, I, I think so. Hellraiser? You still have so. uh, Mark, of the, Mark of the Devil? I borrowed that at the same time as Hellraiser. Ah. so they must. Be. I think they're both on my dresser at home. I actually have. We'll t- we'll, we can talk about <laughs> this with, with Mark, too, because he'll appreciate this. So why don't we bring on Mark Nelson? Uh, he's a native of New Hampshire, and and he grew up just like us, watching Creature Double Feature and and all those old movies that we used to watch. And and now he has his own program, Saturday Fright Special. They've been running for three years and over sixty episodes, and they're getting ready to gear up for their fourth season next month. And he's joining us now to talk about horror and something special they've got going on. How are you tonight, Mark? I am wonderful. Thanks for having me on, guys. Oh, we're we're happy to have you, and you know we're going to allow it this time. But generally, uh, we normally do sue people who try to use the term "spooktacular." <laughs> Copyright nineteen uh, two thousand six, Spooky South Coast Incorporated. But uh, what is the spooktacular for those uh, who are unaware? The spooktacular is basically a good old fashioned night at the movies. Um, what we do, what we try to do, is to get a hold of a thirty five millimeter print of uh, an old fashioned horror movie that maybe people haven't had a chance to see on the big screen. I mean, a lot of times you'll get to see re-releases of, like, The Exorcist or Chainsaw Massacre or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We like to go a little deeper um, so to give people the chance, like me, actually, who weren't around in the 60s or 70s to see movies on the big screen, that opportunity. And for people who were around back then, a little bit of nostalgia. So what we do is we run the film. We run about a half hour of vintage horror monster movie previews and old snack bar ads before the movie. Um, we have our costume characters uh, 
Scarewolf, Taekwondo Dunk, Morbia Papatopoulos, Santoro the Hunter, and Grappler from uh, Saturday Fright <laughs> Special come out on stage and do a little shtick and give away cool prizes and stuff like that. And it's usually about two, two and a half hours in the theater, and it's uh, folks have a good time. And and the film that you're showing this year is uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, but it's a special special edition of that. It's uh, we're very excited. Uh, I had heard there was a print a few years ago making the rounds of King Kong versus Godzilla, and I thought that would be a great uh, a great thing for folks like us who remember seeing it on Creature Double Feature, and, and for kids, and just for pretty much anybody. And uh, so we put the request into Universal for the print, and it turned out that their print that they had been running in theaters since 2004 had uh, gone up in a fire at the studio last year. And uh, for this event, they are actually striking a brand new print of the film. So people who come to the Spooktacular on April 24th will be the first in the country maybe even in the world, to see the U.S. version of this film um, on the big screen again in, now, in this you know, pristine new print. What do they do to, to, to change the print? What do they do to, to update it? Well, I don't know if it's updated. It's basically just striking a new copy of the film. Okay. Um, I know that the uh, sequel, King Kong Escapes, which is the, the fun movie where uh, King Kong fights Mecha, Mechanic Kong, the robot King Kong, <laughs> um, they had a print of that, too, that was uh, pretty old and beat up before the fire. Now they don't have a print of it at all. Um, so what they do is they go back to the negative that the studio has, and they strike a new print, so it should look as good as it did the week it came out back in 1962. Ah, so you can see the rubber and the zippers. Uh, probably, yeah. That's sort of like you know the downside of high def is that you can sort of see the seams where you shouldn't see it. <laughs> so you, you probably will see the rubber and some of the strings a little bit more than you normally would in a, the copies that we used to see on TV that were all beat up and dingy and all that. But that's what makes it fun. You know, that's that's what it's there for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, this film, it's it's whatever you want it to be if you're Curious about these Godzilla films and, and your nostalgia from your youth? You have that. If you want to go and have a good time and laugh at it, there's that too. So we figure we're covering a lot of bases with this film. Now I can tell you, I went out. Uh, maybe it was a yard sale or a flea market, whatever it was, a few years ago. I went out and I bought a, a box set that basically has like ten Godzilla movies oh, in yeah, it. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a great set. And I, I spent like four dollars on it. And, wow. you know, it's so cheap to get a hold of these movies to have your own copies. But what people don't understand is when you want to do a screening in a theater and you contact studios to be able to get these prints, it's not cheap. I mean, is Universal cutting you a break on the, the cost to screen this film? Um, I'm, I'm not privy to the cost of the rental. Um, the, the Colonial Theater handles that. Uh, basically what we do is we're sort of um, curators and consultants for these shows. We basically line up. We find out what's available, and we sort of line up all of the film elements, the, the non-feature elements, and we bring that to them. So they know about the, the fees, but um, the, the problem is just the availability of prints in general. Mm -hmm. um, Universal only has rights to two Godzilla films, and the only one now that they have, because they're making it for us, is King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, there aren't a lot of prints out there that are available, and of the ones that are, they're not all in the best of shape. So that's really the trick is to find a print that's in good shape to show. Um, a lot of times you'll go to a revival screening of an older film, and it may be kind of beat up. It may have made the rounds for the last you know, two or three decades before somebody you know, gets it to your local theater. Is there a, any kind of issue between, uh, like with some other movies, where they're actually the rights to them are held up by cable stations, and therefore they're not allowed to release them to theaters? Occasionally the rights holder for a film will not want to put it in theaters for some reason. Um, I had heard that whoever owns Halloween was not willing to rent that film out last year or the year before for whatever reason. Maybe they felt that the Rob Zombie film was competing with it or something like that. I don't know. But as far as I've seen, um, you know, 
the studios, if they own the rights to the film and they have a print, you're, you're free to use it. I mean, we, you can go out to the theater and see one of these films. Well, let's say it comes on at home. You know, what, I don't know even what channel would show some of these films anymore. Uh, besides programs like yours and, and the, the horror hosts that are hosting these programs around the country on cable access. But, you know, say it was going to be on, you know, uh, the Turner Classic Movies when they used to do Monster Vision or TNT when they had their Monster, Monster Fest or whatever it was that they did. You know, if you watch the movie at home, it doesn't have the same charm as when you get into a theater with a bunch of other people and you're experiencing the the overall experience of going to the theater, seeing this with the previews and the, the commercials, you know, the candy spots right. and everything else included with it. I mean, it, it must just add a whole new dimension to be able to put them on the big screen. It does. And, you know, I think any – personally, I feel that any film is better on the big screen because you're, you're drawn into it more and there are fewer distractions and like that but especially with a godzilla movie i mean godzilla is huge mm -hmm. and when you watch it on tv godzilla is not huge no matter how big your tv is but to see him on a giant sized screen is just it's you know awe-inspiring and you're right with the added uh, film elements that we run it really does sort of take you back in time or, or put you in a, in a place you don't normally get in the theaters these days so i mean I'm, I'm hungry for this sort of thing whenever i can go to it regardless of whether i'm involved with it or not it's kind of a different genre, but I think that uh, the Grindhouse films last year kind of brought people back into that experience right, right. To, to say, hey, I remember when I used to go to the movies and I'd see that on the screen. And, and that's a lot of the elements that you try to bring not only into these screenings, but also into your program Saturday Fright Special as well. Right. What we try to do with the show is, uh, is different horror hosts have different approaches. And what we do, all of us grew up watching TV, Boston TV specifically, in the 70s and 80s. And basically what we patterned after is that because we're on public access and we can't really run commercial breaks or there's really no reason to have commercial breaks, we still put breaks in the film where you normally would if you were watching it on commercial TV. But in those breaks, we put old commercials or skits that we do or old movie trailers or snack bar ads. So it's kind of a, it's a funny mishmash of the experience of watching TV back then and, and also going to the movies back then. So it's sort of a, it's a nostalgia trip for a lot of folks. And for people who didn't live through it, it's sort of a taste of what it might have been like. And it is very authentic to what that experience was. Uh, even the opening, the first few minutes of the program, is so reminiscent of Creature Double Feature that it's it's got to be an homage. Yeah, it's it's actually, I, I thought about it after we did it. It's an homage to several things. Uh, the, the intro to the show is actually, it's, it's based on someone on Creature Double Feature. I took a Godzilla shot and I sort of solarized it because that's what I remember seeing as a kid. Yep. Uh, it's also a show called Creature Features that was done in uh, San Francisco with Bob Wilkins back mm -hmm. in the 70s. And it's sort of patterned after that. And my, I do the voiceover for the opening of the show. And that's sort of a combination of the Creature Double Feature intro and uh, Ernie Anderson, who, who was Goulardi, but who also went and did the uh, ABC Saturday Night movie in the 70s that used to scare the heck out of me. It would always be, tonight on the ABC Saturday Night movie, a film you will not believe. So, it's so yeah, it's very, uh, there's a lot of nods in the show. And, and just the idea of, of being able to run these these movies again is, is just great. And like you said, for those who have never experienced it, it's a chance to see. They don't understand when we talk about it. You know, when we say, oh, we used to watch a movie of, you know, the Santa Claus versus the space versus the Martians. They're like, what? Yeah, yeah. But then when you actually see it and you say, oh, you know, as hard as it is to believe, it works. And that's, that's like, you know, like with the screenings we do. You can watch our show and just be wrapped up in nostalgia and take the film seriously and love it, or you can watch it and laugh at them and have a kitschy good time. We don't particularly care. Um, the approach we take is that we don't, we don't do the MST thing, which I like, 
but we just let the film stand on its own. We don't really try to make fun of it or anything. We may in the breaks make references to it, but we don't we don't really mess with the movie. We and again, it's like a TV used to be. It just it plays and then we go to break and we do what we do. Well, you know, you mentioned you referenced the MSC, the Mystery Science Theater, and that's you know a lot of people want to poke fun at these films and and point out you know hey look you can see the zipper there you can see you know the remote control for that car right and, but. I mean, these filmmakers, when they made these films, they didn't think they were making Frankenstein. You know, they didn't think they were making The Exorcist. They knew what the product was. And a lot of these films, at least uh, from what I've read, you know, they were just mass produced. And they were kind of like, let's just get them out there and get them into the theaters because it's for the matinee crowd. Right. I mean, they were cranked out primarily to make a buck. Uh, But also, there's a lot of creativity. Why I like these movies is that they show me things I haven't seen before. You know, when you're watching a movie like uh, Horror of Party Beach, where it's actually a spoof, but it's a, like a beach party movie where this monster kills the teens, and the monster looks like it's got a mouthful of hot dogs for some reason. That's just funny, and it's unlike anything you've ever seen, or you know, Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman, or any of that kind of stuff. And uh, it, they did it with a sense of humor a lot of the time, and a sense of creativity that came out of the small budget and the quick schedules that they had. And uh, sometimes I find them a lot more entertaining than some more major motion pictures that had a lot more money and time on their hands. Well, also, though, is a, you know, kind of on a shoestring budget that oh, if you don't have CGI money, you can still pull off some of these effects. Right, right. And now, uh, how do you acquire the films that you show in your program? Are these all public domain films? They are. The nature of our beast for us is that we have essentially no budget or, you know, whatever pocket change we have at the time. So the films are all public domain, and what's funny is that most horror hosts are in the same boat, so we're, we're all drawing from the, a very finite pool of films, and it's sort of what you do with it, that how you differentiate yourself. But uh, the films we get, some are from public domain. We do our research to make sure they are public domain. Um, they come from DVD collections, or uh, there's a website, uh, the Internet Archive, it's archive.org, where you can download uh, DVD-quality copies of the films. That's where a lot of our, our commercials and in-between stuff comes from, too. And what a lot of people don't realize when they go out and they buy DVDs is that, you know, if you go out to, to Walmart or to any of these stores and you see the, the set that says 50 classic horror movies for right. only four ninety nine, chances are that those are all public domain films. They are. Sometimes they're not. <laughs> but the uh, I think the companies are operating under the assumption that, you know, when they're told to stop selling them, they'll stop selling them. But uh, basically the RPD films, and, you know, a lot of, I think, horror host shows will, will do that. You know, buy a 50-pack, and there's your season or two. And it, and it works. I mean, it keeps them alive, and it keeps people watching these films. It's almost like you you got to think at some point that uh, Hollywood's going to catch on to what horror hosts like yourself are doing and the fact that there is an audience for this stuff on cable access and either make more films available for you to use or at least kind of co-op the format back into their pockets and, and, and find a way to make it profitable for them. You'd think a studio would or could do that because you, you have channels like, you know, I guess it doesn't exist anymore, but Monsters HD or MGM HD where they have this complete film library from a studio and you could just shoot some wraparounds and have a horror host show. I mean, you've got the library there already. Um, I, most of us horror hosts wish they would, you know, decide to give us a break on licensing and let us get them really cheap, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, the, I think the worst thing that's happening to, to horror movies now, TMC kind of had the right idea when they were bringing Rob Zombie, and I don't know what happened with that. Uh, I don't even remember seeing it. I don't know if it ever actually came together. You know, it was it was called uh, TCM Underground, and I think they still do it, but I think he might not be, you know, the host of it anymore. Mm-hmm. But I keep hearing about really great, obscure, rare stuff that they run, you know, once a month. Or I'm not really sure when they do it, but I've, I've heard they've done some pretty cool things. 
it just it, it annoys the crap out of me to to be tuning into one of these movies and and even if it's a, a 1930s ghost story or whatever it is and to have to you know hear Robert Osborne talking about the movie at the beginning of the film and it's like dude I want somebody that's an actual horror fan. I want somebody who is knowledgeable about the subject, not just reading off the cue cards of what somebody prepared. I don't want the regular Turner Classic Movies guy. I want a horror guy in there, whether it be somebody dressed up in a costume or, or somebody playing like a Zachary type or just be somebody that has personality and has a love for the film. That's always great with when Joe Bob Briggs did Monster Vision Absolutely. on TNT is that that was Turner using their library of films, of which was immense at the time, and he would come on, you know, Saturday, Friday nights, I can't remember when it was, and, and just add a little spark to it, add a little personality to it. I mean, he was he was just an actor, but, I mean, he he got the job done. He, he represented them in a good way. Right, right. Now, it seems like uh, in these days we're seeing more and more remakes of, of some of the, the classic films of our youth. Uh, from the 70s and 80s type movies, but uh, there's a whole untapped market in there from stuff from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, are we going to start seeing some of these become modernized? You know, are we going to start seeing, uh, you know, a, a terrorism bent on giant ants or something? <laughs> that I would absolutely pay to see. <laughs> there's actually a film I, I like called The Bees from the 70s. It's got John Saxon in it. It's one of those deadly bees movies. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my favorites of that genre because there's a moment in the film where John Saxon comes into the U.N. and says, the bees have demands. That <laughs> kills me. The bees have demands. They've got an agenda. Um, you know, I don't think that we're going to see a lot of more, the more obscure horror films remade because sure. it's really all about brand identity is why they even are doing it. They figure there's a built-in audience if it's a title people have heard of. So I don't think you're going to see the Devil Bat remade sooner than you're going to see, uh, I don't know what, Everything, everything, pretty much that you can think of, either has been remade, is being remade, or is on the docket at this point. So, it's hard to say. I mean, as a rule, I don't like the remake trend, but I've seen a couple that I have enjoyed. So, I, I I'll occasionally give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll, I'll say this though: I, when when Hollywood wants to kind of adopt this format and and bring it forward with new storylines, a couple of years ago there was a movie that was really overlooked, and on the surface it seemed genuinely stupid. Uh, but you know, David Arquette made that film Eight Legged Free. He's type of it was perfect. It was a giant monster movie. Those like, were always absolutely, and and it was well done. It was it was handled well. Yeah, it, it's it's nice when you occasionally. I think Tremors was an earlier example of something like that. Sure, mm-hmm. it didn't really do well at the time. I mean, ultimately, it spawned you know eighty sequels in a series. But at the time, it kind of came and went. And I I loved it because it felt like a fifties monster movie with a couple of goobers in the lead. And, and I think that you know if you can get people to buy into the the fantasy aspect of it more and we were talking before you came on about how in today's world today's economy today's world climate you know now is the time when people are willing to kind of escape into some of these stories you know it's it's ripe for some more of these to come out you know i I hope they do and i I, it would it would be nice to see a little bit more creativity in in the hollywood horror genre and not just you know flat remakes of 80s slasher movies but I don't know. It's wherever the money is, really. Well, I, I got to ask you, as somebody who grew up kind of pre-slasher era, uh, I mean, I was a kid in the 80s when I wasn't allowed to see a lot of these slasher films. I didn't see them until later. Uh, what's your take on those in terms of how they fit in the horror genre? You know, I didn't come to the slasher films until a little bit later. I didn't really get seriously into horror until probably I was in high school, and that would have been 89 to 92. Um I'm not a huge fan of the slasher genre, but it, it was it was pretty much the genre of the '80s, you know, late '70s into the '80s, pretty much Halloween up to the, the mid '80s. That was that's what ruled the the, the theaters. Um, 
I don't know if I have that much to say about the slashers, actually. I mean, there's some that I like a lot, and some are just sort of run-of-the-mill. I mean, I notice a lot of these horror hosts, uh, whether it be because they're not in public domain or whatever, but they intentionally stay away from these films because they don't really feel that they're they're horror. They're, they're more, you know, shock and schlock and gore, and they're not... They're not true horror films. They are a little nastier, or a lot nastier, actually. I don't know if any film I could call a slasher film that's public domain. I mean, we would probably run it eventually if, if there was any. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't think of any offhand. I mean, I'm just, I mean, even before Freddy and Jason and all those, there was like Terror Train and, and right. movies like that where, you know, there was always the one weird masked killer. And it just, it got to the point where it became so diluted that it was more comedy than it was horror. I mean, that, it, I like that aspect of it. It ultimately did because they ran out of, you know, Friday the 13th and April Fool's Day and Halloween, and then it became movies like The Ice Cream Man and The Dentist, and that was cracking me up in the late 80s and early 90s, the straight-to-video films where we're picking, it was, it's always like, what's the most innocuous kind of person we can think of, and they're a slasher. Yes, the tax collector. Like the nun, you know, anything <laughs> like that. But, I mean, to, to be able to, to still show these films and to show people, you know, what it was like, and, and it's kind of like a history lesson at the same time for anybody. I mean, we see all these kids, I mean, we see it here in the uh, in this area, Matt, Matt and myself, all these kids that are like the horror fans. You know, every time there's a horror movie that opens up, they're down at the theater and they're wearing their Saw mask and they're wearing their Scream costume, and but they don't understand where this stuff comes from. Yeah, it is disappointing when when horror fans or, or any fans of film don't are unwilling to, to get into the history of it at all because there's just so much to be had and it's not to say that you can't appreciate what's current without pre- appreciating the past but it always to me seems like a, a, a loss to, to shut off you know 80 years of film history just because it's not new um, the stuff we show we generally enjoy for the most part there's been a few movies we've run that we really don't care for but we do you know we are excited about the idea that people who have never seen these might be watching them for the first time. And we do know, I mean, one of the people who works on the show, Rick Trottier, he's a fifth-grade teacher, and he has students who you know, actively watch the show, and they'll come up to him and they'll say, oh, the, I watched the giant Gila monster last week, and what, was the, what did that guy have in his suitcase? And, I mean, their answers questions we can't even answer, but these younger kids are interested in it. And that just, to me, that gives me a, I don't want to say that that means there's hope, but that it's, it's nice to know that the kids are willing to even look at an old black-and-white movie from the 50s anymore. And, you know, when you look back at film history, uh, it's kind of funny that the movies that stand out over time, the movies that seem to last and still have an audience today are the horror films more than any other genre. You know, we're still talking about movies that were made in, you know, 1919, 1920, Lon Chaney films, Murnau's films. Or we're talking about stuff that anything else that they've ever done, but we know their horror work. It's a really good point. I can't think of many other film genres where you could get somebody who's who's young and just getting into the genre and they would appreciate a film from the silent era of the same genre. There's something about horror that cuts through that, and I guess scary is scary, and that doesn't change too much, so much as you know, styles of comedy and drama may seem more dated. Sometimes horror, if, if it's done right, I mean, one of my favorite horror films is The, the Haunting, the Robert Wise film from 1963, I think, and that mm-hmm. film I find really scary now still, and it's this black-and-white movie from 40-something years ago. And, and now, of course, uh, the, the, the trend is toward Japanese horror, and in making Americanized version of those films. Right. I almost think that train is sort of running out of steam at this point. I think they've pretty much covered all the big ones that, that would translate well. I think the problem with Japanese horror is that, I mean, the the common elements of the genre are almost always the same. It's the long, the, the girl with long dark hair and standing in the corner and stuff like that. And as you see the American remake form and 
they are seeming like you're seeing the same film over and over and over again because of that. And I think I think American audiences maybe are they're not seeing those as standards of the genre. You know, they're just seeing them more as cliches that they're getting tired of. And once it becomes something that's in scary movie, then you right. can't put it in scary movies anymore. It's, it's been done to death at that point, yeah. But there are a few, you know, cornerstones of, of modern horror. When you look back at, you know, what the Blair Witch Project was when it first came out, or, you know, what The Exorcist was when it first came out. I mean, there are still, the uh, or the others, films like that. There is still the opportunity for, you know, some degree of groundbreaking, despite the fact that we have 80-plus years of history of watching these films. I always get disappointed when I hear somebody say there are no original stories or it's all been done or everything is... That's not true. I mean, as you said, every once in a while that something will come along that will just knock people's socks off and become a phenomenon, and then we'll get, you know, <laughs> repeated and copied and redone mm -hmm. until everybody's sick of it. Um, but it's always exciting when that comes along, especially when you've been into the genre for a while and you start to feel like, well, you know, nothing new is coming along with that, and it's just it's like, wow, this is great. Now, the one thing, the, the one classic horror icon, group of icons that I think can help keep this uh, going for people is the Universal Monsters. The classic monster, because we, we remember them from our nightmares when we were children. Sure. And the only problem is, is they're such, under such lock and key that unless you go out and buy the DVDs, you're, you're not going to be able to watch them on a regular basis. They're Basically, Turner's got them wrapped up and you get to see them once a year. Yeah, that is too bad. Um, I think some of them, personally, you know, Dracula is classic, but the last time I watched it, I found it Really slow. Oh, I almost felt kind of guilty them. for feeling that way. I feel like I need to watch it again. Um, there is a remake of The Wolfman coming with Del Toro and oh, Bleed. And I'm actually like excited about that. Um, generally, remakes turn me off, especially when somebody's remaking a classic, but The Wolfman is just such a, an iconic character that uh, I'm pretty excited to see what they do with that. But I, but I agree, they're really not shown on TV that much anymore. It used to be in the old days of Channel 56, they were on all the time. I mean, that's how I saw them all originally. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think most local stations are showing fewer movies, and they're showing fewer old movies. Well, and that's the problem. And, and if you know a cable network owns them, then they're limited to that station and however often they feel like showing it. So it is a shame that those aren't out there anymore, because for generations, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Invisible Man, on and on, Dracula, those are the ones that everybody, you know, those are the go-to monsters. I, I can tell you that I think we're going to see a change in that based on the economy, based on the fact of, of the cost of producing television programming. Uh, I think that we're going to see kind of a dip. Uh, there's going to be programming that needs to be film, uh, filled, and when people aren't running out there to buy up those, those infomercial slots that we're seeing all night long on the UHF channels, then people scramble for content. And I wouldn't be surprised if shows such as yours, where there's no risk in running them, might actually finally get a, a more of a network audience. I mean, I we have a new cable channel starting in Wareham, where we live. Uh, the town just started their own cable access stations. And we I sent them an email, and I said, you know, I'd like to talk to you about Penny Dreadful's program and about your program, Saturday Fright Special. I said, there's, there's a lot of these shows going out there, and instantly they're interested. That's great. That's good to hear. And if they're interested, then sooner or later, these these other channels. I mean, it's not like you're getting on USA or TNT, but if you know these local UHF channels are looking to fill some time and they're willing to start picking up on programs like this, that can only help. And the, the thing with using the public domain films is that it cuts your cost down. I mean, we do a two-hour program every. For us, it's every other week we do a new show, and you know, ninety-something minutes of that two hours is is the film itself, and that's. I'd, I'd say it's paid for, but it's not. It's free. Um, so it's, it's, the costs aren't really that much to do a show like we do. I mean, if you want to make it really slick and flashy and have, you know, 
and on fire running through the set, it might be a bit more expensive to do. But then there's, that's kind of taking away from the, the feeling of it. Right, right. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Ernie Bach and the work he re- he did in trying to bring Creature Double Feature back. I, I am. I was I was so excited when he did that. I mean, it's not it's not like the show was, but that's okay. I mean, it's something new, and it's it's cool that he's putting that kind of thing on Boston TV, even if he has to pay for it out of his own pocket, unfortunately. But uh, the the first weekend he did that, when he brought that back, a bunch of friends and I got together with a couple of pepperoni pizzas and some orange soda, and we were you know, <laughs> briefly kids again. I mean, that was kind of the problem with it. I mean, Ernie's a great guy. He's a friend of ours, but I think he kind of got a little bit confused in some of his uh, authenticity to things. I think he was crossing over different programs there. Yeah, it was, it's different. I mean, I just am happy that there's something like that on TV. And it got a positive reaction. I, mean, I talked to people at Channel 56, and they said, you know, the numbers were decent. And to be able to draw, you know, the, the ratings that they did for considering the time slot, I, I'm not sure what they usually would air in that time slot. I almost think that's sort of a dead zone normally unless, you know, he's doing what he's doing. Well, I, I can tell you firsthand that when it comes to broadcast media, when you can give them some sort of original programming paid for out of your own pocket during a time when they wouldn't normally have anything going on, they're more than happy to listen. <coughs> I, WBSM. That's <laughs> right. how we got here. Yeah. You know, we said, hey, we'll, we'll pay for it. We'll, we'll take care of it. It won't cost you anything, and it'll be original programming when you're normally running reruns. And that's a big 10-4, good buddy. <laughs> And that's exactly what, what can happen with these type of shows like yours, Saturday Fright Special. Well, uh, we're available if anybody's listening. Hey, you never know. We'll, we'll definitely keep pushing <laughs> for it. Uh, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we'll, we'll find 60500-508-291-0500. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll be right back with more with Mark Nelson talking about horror films then and now here on Spooky South Coast. Back to Spooky South Coast. You know, I should have given you my iPod. You could have played Takata. That's on there. But uh, we're talking about horror films, and we're talking about Saturday Fright Special with Mark Nelson of that program. And we also have a poll up on SpookySouthCoast.com. Matt Costa, why don't you tell everybody what tonight's poll is? All right. It's uh, who would win in a fight, King Kong, Godzilla, or Jack Bauer? And I'm, I'm sorry. I have to put my vote in on Jack Bauer for that one. I will shoot you, Godzilla. I don't want to have to shoot you, but I will. There's nothing Jack Bauer can't do. It's true. In a day. Your, your take on that, Mark? Who would win in that battle? It depends on whether King Kong and Godzilla have to adhere to the Geneva Convention or not. That's true. Well, I mean, Jack Bauer doesn't, so See, why should they have to? He may have the edge on that. Now, I, I don't want you to ruin it for us and tell us who wins out in the end, but is King Kong versus Godzilla the epic battle that people would think it is? It is a monster-stomping, uh, car-crushing, gargantuan of entertainment. Uh, there was actually a rumor that's not true, uh, that there were two versions of the film, two endings. Uh, the rumor was that the U.S. version had King Kong victorious, and the Japanese version had Godzilla as the winner. That's not true. There's only been one ever, and uh, I won't say who it is, though. Yeah, you don't want to ruin that. No. It's coming up on Friday, April 24th at the Historic Colonial Theater in Keene, New Hampshire at 7 p.m. And if people want to get tickets, how can they go about ordering some ahead of time? Uh, they can go to thecolonial.org, or they can call 603-352-2033, 
and get uh, tickets in advance, um, but they, as you said, they'll also be at the door. And tickets are only $10. I mean, you can't go see a modern movie for $10, the way the prices keep getting jacked up, and to be able to see not just the film, but all the other stuff that you guys have planned around it, it just sounds like it's a great night. We try to give you as much, uh, much infotainment as we possibly can for that $10. Now, uh, I'm hoping that King Kong vs. Godzilla is significantly longer than the other classic battle, Bambi meets Godzilla. <laughs> if we could get a print of that, we would so run that before the film. Uh, it, I remember seeing that on Night Flight when I was young. Do you remember Night Flight? I do not, no. Uh, it was a show that USA Network used to run in the early to mid-'80s, and it was a combination of cult movies and music videos oh, and weird yep. short clips and old bloopers, and it was this really cool late-night show. And that's sort of an inspiration for what we do, too, as far as some of the, the weird video clips we throw in here and there. That's right. I do remember that. It was kind of like the precursor before they started running the Up All Night stuff. And Yeah, they did that beforehand. And, and my dad, I think that's where he might have taped Bambi Meets Godzilla for me to see for the first time. Yeah, that's where I first saw it. And, and I, I'm pretty sure that – I don't think that's public domain, but I'm pretty sure that the uh, the artist is still alive, the the cartoonist that put it together. I think so. uh, Marv Wolfman, I think his name was. Uh, I don't know much about him beyond this, the fact that he did that. Let's see if we can track him down and, and see if uh, you know if he'll give his okay for it. That would be great. Maybe next year when you guys have the next Death Spooktacular, we can – we can get it in there for you. That's the great thing about being in the position of being like in the media is we all we have to do is lull them into an interview. Really, really. And then we get to say to them, oh, by the way. I think you need to have him on and talk to him for an hour about Bambi meets Godzilla. I think we could. About if like a, you know, like a one-minute cartoon with a six-second payoff. It, but it's still, it's, it's iconic. It is. You know, it's you, wonderful. And, and for those who haven't seen it, just go on YouTube. I'm sure it's up there. Oh, it's got to be. And, and you'll be able to check it out. Now, all-time favorite Godzilla movie? Oh, boy, it's almost sacrilege, but, you know, one of my favorites, it's not sacrilege, but you should say an early Godzilla, uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Monster Attack from early 2000s. As long as you didn't say the uh, the 2000 version. Oh, no, the, no. The one with uh, the, the Puff US Daddy version. song. Yeah. No. I, I saw that at the drive-in, and I started to get a little sleepy, and I just basically said, you know, I think I'd rather sleep. <laughs> I didn't even bother to go see it, because I knew I'd rather sleep. I think the co-feature may have been passable, and that's why we went at all. But it, yeah. Now, is there is there still uh, is there more Godzilla films on the docket? I mean, not with, you know, these all-star casts, but I mean, are people still looking to bring back the idea of Godzilla? I know there was a film called Final Wars just a few years ago, and the intention of that basically there have been a few series of Godzilla films. There's basically uh, from the first film, sort of through the 70s, was one series, as I understand it, and then they brought him back with Godzilla 1985. And then there was the, this most recent series, and they stopped it with with Godzilla Final Wars. And I think the plan was to just basically give the character a rest for about a decade. I can't believe that they're never going to make another one because it's such an iconic series, and they, they do make money in in, uh, in Japan. So well, I can tell you another one in you know, five or ten years. We got about thirty seconds here, but I cover the Celtics, and, and one of the favorite video clips on the Jumbotron is when they have Godzilla come out stomping his feet and clapping. You know, I love boom, that. Boom, that's great stuff. All right, Mark. Well, we thank you very much. And, of course, people can go to your website, SaturdayFrightSpecial.com, and check out your show. And hopefully we can start getting you on some of the cable systems down this way as well. Wonderful. Thanks so much, guys, for having me on. It's a cool show. Thanks for joining us. We hope to talk to you again in the future. All right. We are going to take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll have more about horror here on Spooky South Coast. Don't forget, call in, 508-996-0500, 508-291-05 at com. All right. We'll be back in just a bit. Friday the 13th. 
but it gets worse on Saturday the 14th. This is usually the part when people start screaming. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. I All right, welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we're talking about horror tonight. But uh, for just a few minutes, we're going to check in with paranormal investigator and author Tom D'Agostino, who's going to update us about a couple events coming up. And we'll also talk to him about what he's got going on in the world of paranormal investigation. Good evening, Tom. How are you tonight? Good, good. How are you? Oh, we are spooktacular. So what's been going on lately? Well, we've been traveling around writing some books. And, now, and uh, you know, just doing different investigations around New England. And I guess having a spectacular time. There you go. And I read a great uh, article in a recent uh, Fate magazine that you wrote about Dungeon Rock. That was a great piece. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. We love that place. Now, in, in Fate magazine, for those uh, who... who who don't read it, and they're, they're of course, a friend of ours, and we advertise with them, and uh, they have lots of great articles, and, and, Tom, you've been writing for them for quite a while. Yeah, actually, uh, my first article was in 2000. And I remember when we started this program, I saw an article that was written by you, and I said, oh, this guy lives in Rhode Island. We should try to get a hold of him. And then, uh, who knows, you know, at a few months later, we had you on the program, and, and you've been a great friend to us ever since. Oh, yeah, yeah, you guys are great. I mean, it, it's a lot of, your program is really fun, and it's one of the most informative programs I've ever listened to. Thank you. We, we try to keep that. I mean, that's the important part is getting the information out there, and then what people decide what to do with it. It's not our place to tell them. You know, as you know as an investigator, you know, all you can do is collect the data, and then you make the interpretations later on. Right, and you have fun at it, too. You don't, you know. <laughs> sure. And and you said that you're working on some books. What what are some of the upcoming projects? Can you can you let that cat out of the bag? Sure. Um, we are working on Haunted Connecticut, ah. which we're almost done. A travel guide to the other side, which is a really cool places around New England that people can actually stay like the whole weekend and tour, and it has a lot of haunted places and cool things to do. And we're working on Haunted Vermont. And next weekend, we're going to be in the Berkshires at this place called the Eastover. Mm -hmm. It's a resort, and they have, uh, it's called the Paranormal Weekend. We're actually teaching people how to do paranormal investigations. And then for the whole weekend, we're going to be going through the buildings and doing investigations because it's supposedly haunted. And the people who stay there actually get to use the equipment and do the investigations like an investigator themselves. Beautiful. And it's an all-inclusive package where they have, like, uh, just, a, I mean, the place is awesome. You know, they, it's all meals included and, and, of course, all the haunted places. They got one of the largest Civil War museums in the country. And 
and to be able to go to one place and have all that stuff, you know, come together for you. You don't have to leave to go try to track something down to eat. You know, you really get to stay there and get acclimated to the place, and that makes it probably easier to distinguish between what's paranormal and what's just creaks and moans and. Right, yeah, once, once you check in, you, that's it. Anything and everything is at your disposal. they got archery ranges, rifle ranges, horseback riding. Wow. Uh, ghosts. <laughs> How much are the tickets? Uh, 220 for the whole weekend, starting from Friday to Sunday. But, I mean, to, to have everything included, you can't beat that. More than that, just staying overnight, you know, in, in a Motel 6. <laughs> sure, yeah. And, and how can people get tickets? They can call 1-800-VACAY-FUN, V-A-C-A-F-U-N, or they can go to eastover.com. Excellent. Now, uh, they get a, oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. They, they, we, we're giving out like a ghost primer, like 11-page ghost thing that, you know, just tells about investigations. And they actually get to use the equipment that you see on TV or whatever. <laughs> and I know that you're also working on some classes with uh, Bay State Paranormal Center as well. Yeah, we have worked on a few. And um, right now things are so busy, I can't really commit to some till the summer because we got to finish these books. Sure. we got to travel every week and like a maniac. <laughs> What about Tavern on Main? Ah, Tavern on Main. I gotta call them. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Thanks for reminding me, Matt. <laughs> You're welcome, because I wanna help you out with that again. Anytime you yeah, do that's those that's a great place. That's the most haunted place we've ever been to. I, I definitely enjoy being there. And uh feel free to join us at but uh the Lizzie Borton house on the twenty eighth. Yeah, we would love to. And and uh we're we're also hoping to to bring you into a few of the places in Wareham that we're going to be doing uh, in the coming months when it gets warmed up. And I'm trying on the nail factory, Matt. I'm really trying for the nail factory. We'll, that, I we'll want make to a get push toward there. that. Hey, we got into the Faring Tavern. This place is right next door. It's all part of the same yeah, thing. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we can pull it off. But uh, I, you Now, you mentioned the, the, uh, the travel guide to the other side and, and some of these re- really strange places where you can spend a weekend. Does that include Moniz's house? <laughs> well, we, we didn't want to scare the people too much. <laughs> There's a reason why he's surrounded by water. <laughs> Charges up all the activity going on. Yeah, huh? All right, tell me. Uh, actually, Arlene and I are dying to get out there and spend a weekend at, a, at his house. You don't have to die. You don't have to go to that extent. <laughs> no, but... It, it is good for I business. I can bring them back. <laughs> yeah, he'll bring us back. The, the mysterious island of Dr. Moniz, as we like to call it. You never know what creatures are going to be running around out there. All right, Tom. Well, thank you very much for checking in with us, and hopefully you can come and join us for a full program sometime soon. Oh, we'd love to. That'd be great. Arlene and I always look forward to it. All right. Well, we'll get you on a weekend when you don't have to go all over the place. Yeah, well, after May, we're good. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Tom. We'll talk to you real soon. Have fun. Thank you, and it was great talking to you, and have a good night. All right. Stay spectacular. Thanks, Tom. All right, that was Tom D'Agostino, paranormal investigator and author of such books as Haunted Massachusetts, Haunted Rhode Island, the forthcoming Haunted Connecticut, which is, you know, got to tie into that upcoming film, A Haunting in Connecticut, the the big budget remake of the the television program. And I think that you're going to see a a real whole bunch of attention paid on Connecticut in the coming months. And, of course, Tom is right there in one of the most haunted houses in Connecticut, right? Uh, Yeah, actually, (laughs) his house has got some really good activity going on. I mean, when you have a turkey like airport out of the freezer onto the table, yeah, that gets your attention. And it makes preparing dinner a lot easier, too. Yeah, I guess. If you forget to take something out, 
you know, Including, maybe the ghost of the Stuart The Fire. other thing uh, you also, they also wind up getting is beer being taken out of the refrigerator and being opened and left out on the table. Now, that is convenient. That's alcohol abuse. <laughs> Only if it's drank. That's true. They're just, they're just getting it ready for you when you come home. All right, well, that does sound weird, but you know what else sounds weird? More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> The Week in Weird. All right, our first story comes from BBC News, and it was posted on SpookySouthCoast.com by The Bogman, who was actually one of the first people to ever post on our site. He was one of the first listeners to ever get back to us about this program, uh, what, three years ago. So uh, we thank you for being such a loyal listener for all that time, and, and he runs a great site himself as well. All right, people who drink too much coffee could start seeing ghosts or hearing strange voices, UK research has suggested. People who drank more than seven cups of instant coffee a day were three times more likely to hallucinate than those who took just one, a study found. I wonder why. Our Durham University team questioned 200 students about their caffeine intake, the journal Personality and Individual Differences reported. However, academics say the findings do not provide, quote, a causal link. They also stress that experiencing hallucinations is not a definite sign of mental illness and that about 3% of people regularly hear voices. This is the first step toward looking at the wider factors associated with hallucinations, said psychology PhD student Simon Jones, who led the study. He said previous research had suggested factors such as childhood trauma could be linked to hallucinations. When under stress, the body releases a hormone called cortisol, which is produced in greater quantities after consuming boost could be what causes a per- person to hallucinate. Therefore, Mr. James added, it made sense to examine the link between caffeine and mood. Besides coffee, sources such as tea, chocolate, pet pills, and energy drinks contain caffeine. After asking the students about their typical intake, the research team assessed their susceptibility to hallucinatory experiences and stress levels. Among the experiences reported were seeing things that were not there, hearing voices, and sensing the presence of dead people. Uh, The researchers now plan to investigate whether other aspects of diet, such as sugar and fat consumption, might also be associated with hallucinations. Uh, Recent research has linked high caffeine intake among pregnant women to miscarriage or low birth weight. Other studies suggest that it could help prevent skin cancer, reduce nerve damage associated with multiple sclerosis, or cause problems for diabetic sufferers. So, I mean, there you go. Caffeine could be... Causing us to see ghosts. That could be the only problem. And, and as you know, everybody who goes on a ghost hunt, they always have their coffee and their Coke and everything they need to stay up all night. And they're chugging away at it, making sure that they make it through the entire investigation. And sure enough, something happens. There you go. That's the, that's, that's the answer right there. It's got to be. Then how do you explain what shows up on right. the cameras and the recorders, which are not drinking? Or how about everything that isn't a hallucination and is some other kind of experience, be it auditory or physical or... I can't explain them all based on one story. <laughs> okay. But no, I mean, it, it's 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 definitely a good point. It's a valid point. Yeah. But it, to me, it doesn't explain. It's a chemical compound on. that's interfering yeah. with the natural processes of the body and your natural senses. I mean, ironically, when I was a kid, what made me hallucinate was Flintstones vitamins. I was taking them. I looked out the window. I saw the Incredible Hulk. My mom said, you're not taking those vitamins anymore. <laughs> Where'd you find those? Oh, Dad's dresser. What? <laughs> All right, Matt Costa, what do you have for us? Right. 
Dutch researchers have re- successfully reduced the fear response in human volunteers by administering them a beta blocker called uh, propanol. I'll go with that. Okay. Close yeah. enough. Okay. Uh, the study carried out at the University of Amsterdam showed that the weakened fear memories do not return over the course of time. While it has been thought to date that it was impossible to delete the fear memory, work has shown that changes can indeed be be affected in the emotional memory of human beings. The researchers point out that there is a temporary labile phase before uh, fear memories are stored in long-term memory, during which protein synthesis takes place that records the memories. During the study, the researchers showed images of two different spiders to, to the human volunteers. One spider image images were accompanied by a pain stimulus, while the other was not. The team said that the volunteers showed a fear response upon seeing the first spider without the pain stimulus being administered. And the anxiety for, the, for that spider had therefore been acquired. The researchers revealed that the volunteers were administered the, the beta, blo- beta blocker just before the reactivation. According to them, the volunteers had, who had been administered the drug no longer exhibited the f- a fear response on seeing the spider even on the third day. The group then that had received the drug but whose memory was not reactivated still showed a strong fear response after the treatment the drug in the memory reactivation, fear memories could no longer be recalled by the means by the means of much used methods in which the individual pain stimuli are readministered. They believe that the findings may contribute to a new procedure for treatment of patients with anxiety disorders. And that's from the Natural Neuroscience Journal. And and so beta blockers, you say? Beta. Because I'm afraid of the guy from the Blue Blockers commercial. Remember him? (laughs) Man, I love these Blue Blockers. Oh, no, Beta. (laughs) We had a long conversation about Beta the other day, didn't we? Beta Max. I'm waiting for the VHS blocker. (laughs) VHS or Beta? It's actually a band. All right, Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? From Eddie Middleton in the Nashville UFO Examiner on examiner.com. Billionaire real estate investor and entrepreneur Robert Bigelow of Las Vegas is now betting his box on MUFON to find a valuable and new knowledge about alien propulsion system. Bigelow, who has long been known to give millions of dollars to fund serious UFO research, has just concluded a deal with MUFON whereby he will supply the organization with whatever it needs to be able to go out and bring back the hard evidence, not only to document the reality of UFOs, but with them interacting with us. Most important, to gather the kind of information that will truly advance scientific understanding of this phenomenon. Now, for the first time, MUFON's volunteer members are going to be paid to do their work. MUFON's agreement with Bigelow is to train and qualify special rapid response who can be deployed within 24 hours to the scene of a major UFO event, the kind designated as Category 2 or 3 in the classification system devised by the legendary UFO researcher Jacques Vallée. These are the rare cases where either physical traces are left or physiological effects are caused 
in the witnesses. Bigelow has hired 50 top flight scientists to assist MUFON in this endeavor who will function as consultants and do expensive lab analysis of alien materials gathered at the locations of UFO events. Bigelow, who never does anything on a small scale, a few years ago funded uh, BASS, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, with the incredibly ambitious goal of putting a commercial hotel up in orbit around Earth. He thinks that even one category or two or three uh, category, the case may probably, if properly investigated, can yield scientific pay dirt. So what do you think about that? A billionaire putting his own money into researching these alien He's actually systems. been doing this for four mm-hmm. years. Uh, I got a chance to deal with him uh, back in 1993, 92, 93, when I had uh, my little organization going on. He, he is uh, very much in, in, into the paranormal as well. Uh, he didn't initially start with UFOs. He was uh, actually interested in ghosts and talking to the dead because he had his son... Uh, died uh, okay. in a tragic event and he was looking for a way to get back in communication in some form with him and uh, he became interested in the paranormal itself and all of the various things out there and he's been pretty philanthropic about helping people he's helped people like Bud and uh, Linda Moulton Howe and he helped uh, us out uh, with some crop circle stuff and things like that he, he is a really nice guy maybe we should get him on the show sometime I still have some of his contacts. Yeah. Well, you th- know, I was on his website, and I saw that they have, you know, he has media people that handle requests, so maybe we can put something sure. in and see what happens. Uh, also, uh, examiner.com, for those who are unfamiliar, it's a website uh, where there's a local one for every city, for every region, and different people write about different uh, aspects of life. And, you know, there's like a, a Boston Celtics examiner. There's a horseback riding examiner. You know, there's somebody for all different walks of life, and, and it seems like almost every city has a paranormal examiner. And, and they do a great job with these stories, finding these stories that are in their area and making sure they put them up there. So go to examiner.com, check them out, and you can find out, you know, what's going on around the world. And these are stories that might not always make the news wires, uh, but these people at the Examiner website are picking up on them. So worth checking out. Also, speaking of other stories that uh, are out there about the paranormal, we have the haunted headlines coming up for you right now with Chris Balzano. And then we'll take a break. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk to David... Colton of the Rondo Awards, the uh, Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. If you'd like to check out his site during the break, rondoaward.com. Also linked up to the front page at spookysouthcoast.com. We'll be right back with more talking about horror here on Spooky South Coast. vault is open. You're listening to The Haunted Headlines, your source for the stories making waves in the paranormal news. Sponsored by GhostVillage.com at www.GhostVillage.com backslash news. Good evening and welcome to The Haunted Headlines, Ghost Village's weekly journey around the paranormal newswire to bring you the biggest stories affecting the ghost community. I'm Chris Balzano. Crime again makes an appearance in the haunted headlines this week. 
After our report a few weeks ago about a man who claimed demons were telling him to commit suicide, a man in Niagara claims ghosts made him burn down his house. The Buffalo News reported this week that Brad Fisher, 34, set his mobile home on fire, burning it beyond use. He was held on $75,000 cash or $150,000 bond after being charged with third-degree arson. But the judge also called for a mental health evaluation because the man told Sergeant Christopher Solori he set his couch on fire because, quote, ghosts and demons were harassing him. While ghosts may be causing crime, some people who look for it in Texas are fighting it. The El Paso Times this week reported some vandals had attacked Concordia Cemetery in central El Paso. In addition to graffiti, whomever damaged the area also took eight concrete benches and destroyed three others. The cemetery has long been a target for both vandals and cults who have used a historic location for supposed ceremonies, leaving altars and animal parts behind. Members of the Concordia Heritage Association, led by Association Vice President Henry Flations, from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. on March 20th to help raise money that will go to fixing the damages. The cost is $10, and anyone in the El Paso area is encouraged to go to the association at 915-842-8200. That's 915-842-8200. And out of England, you are invited to participate in a nationwide debunking exercise. Psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman from the University of Herefordshire is posting images of suspected ghosts and asking people from around the world to determine which are real. According to Wiseman, speaking with The Telegraph, the evaluation is an attempt to connect with people who have had experiences, but also to see what filter they view the paranormal from. His assumption is that people who can vote online for which is real will be vote based on what their idea of a ghost is, not the quality of the picture or whether it might be a genuine spirit photo. The pictures can be viewed at http backslash backslash scienceofghosts.wordpress.com. The results and a new survey of experiences will be revealed at the Edinburgh Science Festival next month. Thank you for listening to the Haunted Headlines. You can find out more about these stories and others by going to the Ghost Village news site at www.ghostvillage.com backslash news. Till next week, I'm Chris Balzano, and that's what's haunting me. lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And joining us on the phone is David Colton. He's the founder of the long-running classic horror film board website, now in its 15th year. And he also runs the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards, the largest online survey of classic horror fans, which is now in its seventh year. And he's joining us to talk about that and more. Good evening, David. How are you tonight? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're, we're glad you could join us. Uh, we, we've known about the Rondo Awards for a few years now because our friend Penny Dreadful is nominated, and, and she always wants to spread the word about getting votes. Uh, but when I first came across you know, the ballot and I saw how in depth it is. I mean, you must either have your finger right on the pulse of the horror community or do a lot of research to put those ballots together. 
Yeah, it's a little crazy. If you haven't seen the ballot, it's 29 uh, categories and 10 to 20 sometimes uh, nominations per category. It's um, but it's it's a great look at everything that's out there in the classic horror genre. So it's wor- is worthy of doing. And if you want to vote, you can do that until next week by going to rondoaward.com. And it's also linked up on our site, SpookySouthCoast.com. Right, and and this is classic horror. By classic horror, we mean Karloff and Lugosi and Cheney, the 50s science fiction films. Um, not so much Freddy and Jason and Saw, the Saw movies. Um, you know, a lot of kids today think that classic is Freddy and Jason, but um, we go farther back to the 30s and 40s. As you should, because that, I mean, that, as we were talking before uh, with our first guest, Mark Nelson, I mean, that's true horror to us is, you know, something that goes beyond just somebody running around with a knife. Right. Um, you know, and I'm sure kids today will have the same nostalgia that we have for what we used to watch on Black and White on Shock Theater, you know, with Freddie and Jason and those films, which which do look kind of charming now, actually, when you look back at them. But um, this is a celebration of people like Ray Harryhausen and Jack Pierce, the, the makeup guy behind all the Universal films, Forrest J. Ackerman, the founder of Famous Monsters, who died recently, um, this whole world of people who grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, this loving these old films. And it's not like there isn't a, a community for this stuff. I mean, if you look at the, the ballot and you see some of the, the number of websites that are dedicated to talking about classic horror or, or other aspects related to classic horror, as well as the number of different podcast shows that are nominated as well. I mean, this is definitely alive and thriving. Yeah, it's probably more popular than it's ever been. I mean, it was quite a fad in the in the 60s where, you know, um, Zach, when Zachary came on television and Vampira um, and the horror host phenomenon began. Um, Penny Dreadful, who won it last year as the Rondo as Best Horror Host, is in that tradition of, of hosting, you know, um, classic films and uh, giving them a little bit of a humorous edge. But um, you can find information about these films everywhere now, and it's really heartening. Well, I mean, years and years ago, in order to really meet up with others who were into this stuff, you had to go to different conventions, or maybe you talked, you ran into somebody at a flea market who uh, happened to have some merchandise. I mean, I can tell you, I have a, a, an original Mark of the Devil barf bag <laughs> that they used to hand out in the theater, and right. on the other side of it, it says a dollar, because somebody was actually using it as a, as a price thing to put on their table at a... At a flea market <laughs> so i mean but back then i mean that was the only way you could really discuss this stuff with people and now with the internet and as you and as we said you know classic horror film board site in its 15th year it is able to bring everybody together and now with the video sites and the different aspects that we have you can actually experience this stuff for your own just with a couple of clicks yeah um you know it, it's an interesting experiment a lot of you know when i kids 10 11 years old you know would really roll their eyes at a black and white movie but if you can get them to sit down for Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or even The Bride of Frankenstein or The Invisible Man, I mean, after a few minutes, they just get captured by it, just like we did. And um, those are good, not, I won't say safe films because, you know, there's a little bit of anarchy in them, but um, good films to, to indoctrinate a young kid to show that monsters have, can be complicated and not just be madmen. Now, you lead off the ballot, of course, with uh, the best movie of 2008. And I understand where you're coming from with that because you're trying to, you know, everybody's got their opinion of what the best movie is that came out last year because they've seen them all. So, you know, you can really draw people in with having that as the first question. But how do you go about deciding what would fit into the Rondo Awards based on what's coming out in today's cinema? Um, It's interesting. Like Saw 5, 
the fifth sequel to the torture porn series, we did not put on the ballot. It just doesn't seem to be in any way fit into classic, the classic horror genre. While a film like Let the Right One In, which is a very stylish vampire movie, does sort of capture the classic feel. Um, you know, the classic monsters have, there's a certain heart they had, a certain spirit, a Saturday afternoon friendliness. And films like that, even some gruesome films, can have a good heart. Um, and that's what we kind of look for. But the best film category is kind of a, it's a little awkward, <laughs> to, uh, to to be frank, but, but it, it does. Especially with a film like Cloverfield, uh, which is kind of just in there as the, the best movie of 2008 that might kind of be keeping this genre alive. Because other than that, it was just, in my opinion, it was a horrible film. I expected so much more from that movie. Uh, well, that's funny because I kind of loved it. I, I, really? I, 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 it totally won me over. It was um, um, just what I wanted to see, actually. Well, but um, um, a lot of people don't. You know, I like Dave Stood Still, which most people didn't like. Um, a few people voted for The Happening, which is a very reviled movie by most people. Sure, yeah. It's amazing counting the votes to see what people like and don't like. Uh, can you can you kind of give us a sneak preview of what might be you know in the lead or, or one of the films that's up there? Oh, it looks like The Dark Knight is going <laughs> to blow away everybody. <laughs> I think that would win any best movie of two thousand eight. Yeah. Uh, it looks like Dark Knight, Iron Man, and uh, Hellboy are the top three. But um, it's funny I, I count them with with cross hatches on paper and it's all piled up and I haven't really edited it up yet. But it looks like Dark Knight for sure is going to win. Uh, well, part of what turned me off to Cloverfield too is we were sitting in here one night doing the show. And we on the news breaks at the top of every hour, and and you know I was trying to insulate myself from hearing anything about the movie, mm-hmm. and the news guy comes on and he's like Cloverfield, a movie about a giant lizard that attacks the city. I was like, oh man, jeez. Right. Now uh, spoilers are one of the, the everything you just talked about a few minutes ago about how great it is to be able to get information. The downside for me is spoilers and you know scripts that are leaked before the film comes out and. Uh, you know, I, I like to go into a movie, and Cloverfield, I kind of almost didn't know what it was. I, I sort of knew it's about a giant monster, but wasn't really sure. Um, and I, I think we we sort of ruin the movie experience when we know so much and see so much before we even go in there. I mean, I, I can tell you for years I was on websites trying to look up, you know, what was going to happen in Indiana Jones. And when I actually got into the theater and watched the film, it was nothing like I was expecting and they did a good job of being able to keep some of that storyline secret. And when you're making one of the most anticipated movies of all time, it's, it's hard to do that. Right. Um, similar with The Watchmen. Um, I tried to not watch any of the trailers and, you know, um, for all the excitement about what they revealed at San Diego and that kind of thing. Um, I, 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 I'd rather fresh. And you've also got an, a, a category about best television presentation. And there are some programs that are, that are definitely – uh, little pieces of it might fit into classic horror, uh, especially Lost with the way that the story untangles. And, uh, and, and Supernatural, of course, deals with a lot of the horror stuff that goes back, you know, beliefs that we've had for centuries. Uh, but, I mean, is it hard even in some of these programs to find stuff that will connect, uh, that will be part of the tradition of classic horror? Yeah. Um, it's funny. Lost actually does have a monster. You know, they, mm-hmm. they played with it for the first couple of years, but, you know... Um that big uh, fog monster actually seems to be a monster. Um, yeah, again, um, it, it's really a spirit or a just the feel of something that that it, that it just feels right. Um, we almost nominated the the box set of Little Rascals, 
all the Little Rascals episodes, because, you know, those aren't monster movies, but, you know, they certainly were of that era. Um, we ended up not nominating those. for. Um, but you sort of know it when you see it. And uh, a show like Fringe or Heroes or uh, even Battlestar and Doctor Who um, all have that sense of continuity from the classics that came before. When you look at it, when you start getting into the real meat of the ballot and you're looking at some of the DVD collections that have come out and the, the different documentaries, and it seems like this stuff is still definitely alive in the DVD market. And one of the controversies of the year that you have, and, and I like the fact that, you know, you have Count Alucard. <laughs> which, which, which one was that? Was That's that House of Dracula? Dracula? Yeah. Yeah, that, I remember seeing that when I was a kid on, like, Channel 56 in the middle of the night. Um, but when you're talking about the controversies there, it's it, one of them is about Blu-ray and some of these films being released on Blu-ray, and it seems like not enough of them are being moved into that format. Is that because they don't feel there's a market for them, or is it really just because we're waiting for things to come out on Blu-ray? Uh, it's it's a puzzlement to me because Blu-ray people who have Blu-ray, except for like gamers who you know just just have it as part of um, their game platform, um, you know, tend to be movie uh, fans. Mm -hmm. And would like to see older films, and it isn't just, you know, the the point of this is that there aren't there aren't very many classic horror films on Blu-ray. In fact, there's none that I can think. It's also true about just regular classic films. You know, I think Casablanca is on Blu-ray, but um, it's very hard to find older films. Criterion, the uh, very upscale DVD uh, company, has recently begun switching its catalog to to Blu-ray, and we'll see. Um, there's a lot of speculation that, you know, physical media is just going to die on its own, that people will be start downloading things. Mm -hmm. um, so whether there will even be a window long enough to get classic horror on Blu-ray is, is uncertain. What I like about the format, though, is the size of the disc gives you the opportunity where, you know, you can put a Dracula in four or five sequels or, or you know, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. You can fit more than one film on a disc for something that people aren't going to want to go out and spend $30. Uh, you know, obviously film buffs and, and fans of the genre will, but the general public isn't going to go out and spend, you know, 30 bucks a pop to collect all the Dracula films. But if you can give them all of them on one Blu-ray for 40 or 50 bucks, you know, then I think it's something that people are going to really draw an interest in. And to be able to say, okay, I can't watch these films on TV because they, they, they really look like crap on my high-def TV a version of it on Blu-ray, it'll make all the difference in getting these movies on people's DVD players. Oh, I agree totally. It, it, it's really a mystery why um, they're not tapping that more. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Universal will with their, with their monsters because, you know, they're, they're trying to keep that alive as a marketable thing, but... A lot of these movies that are coming out on DVD, I mean, it's it's a shame that we have to wait this long to see some of these come out on that format. Yeah, um, we have a category like which film still hasn't been released, should be released. Um, like Island of Lost Souls, the great 1932 film with Charles Lawton and Bella Lugosi, you know, What is the Law, um, was <laughs> the title of a Devo, Devo's first album. Mm -hmm. um, you know, has never been released was released on video once, and I think it was on Laserdisc, but it has not been released on DVD. And, it, you know, it's one of the great horror films. It, it uh, has the House of Pain in it. It's just wonderful. I, I, is one of the reasons why? Is it because of the hard-to-get availability of some of the original transfer? Possibly, but they did they did have it on, on Laserdisc. It was, it was produced by Paramount, and I think Universal bought those films. So um, we've never really gotten an explanation on why it hasn't been released. But it has won that category, I think, every year running now. Well, there's no more voice than that to get the job done. <laughs> well, we'll see. 
Well, we were talking with Mark Nelson earlier about how many of these films have fallen into the public domain, and they're available from uh, websites like archive.org and the Internet Archives, and, and that people can actually get these, download them, and watch them in their house. And as you said, you know, there's going to be that move toward digital media. Are, are we stuck in a cycle with a lot of these films where, you know, they, they might be in the public domain, but there's nobody that's actually printing them to get them out there into stores, even as like a dollar Walmart, you know, ca- uh, right by the cash register type sale? Uh, I think it's just a glut of, of product when you really think about it. Like, you know, um, kids today, you know, don't know who Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi is. And when you really think about it, like, why should they? They have grown up. We grew up with five, six channels. They have mm-hmm. grown up with, like, 300 channels. Um, and there's so much product out there that a lot of these older films, I think, are just, you know, I think normally what happens in history, just, you know, get lost get lost in, in the past. Um, they say that 90% of the silent films that were produced uh, have disappeared and are no longer available. Um, and that's why I think efforts like all the horror historians and whatever you know the Classic Horror Film Board does or all these other sites can do are just an attempt to keep this history alive in little bits and pieces. If it ends up that people are just downloading the films and keeping them in their own archives, I guess that's another way of preservation. Well, we were talking earlier, too, about, uh, you know, the place of horror in, in history. And we talked about how it's possible that it might be the single longest-lasting genre of film because we don't remember some of the dramas that came out in the, in the teens and the 20s. But it seems like all the, the classic horror films still live on in people's minds from, you know, Nosferatu and even before that. That's really true. A lot of the biggest stars of the 20th century are being forgotten, you know, um, People like, you know, Errol Flynn or Alan Ladd or Jimmy Durante, um, you know, those, their, their names are sort of out there, but, you know, I think they're slowly being forgotten. Frankenstein Monster and, and Bela Lugosi's Dracula um, are so, such iconic figures um, that they're certainly going to last just like Superman and Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan. And I think as, as you hear young directors praise, you know, Wes, Wes Craven is somebody that, that influenced them, or they'll say maybe Toby Hooper. They also throw in a Todd Browning, uh, F.W. Murnau. So th- they are aware of, of what the history is that's coming in, the, in their genre, at least. Yeah, one of the most fun things about the Rondos is um, the, what you win is this bust of Rondo Hatton, the tortured 40s character actor. And it's really a wonderful little artifact. If you go to the website, you can see what it looks like. But last year or two years ago, Pan's Labyrinth won. And we sent the bus to Guillermo del Toro, the director, and um, he loved it. And it was just next to his Oscars or whatever, um, you know, there's a Rondo, Rondo statuette. And he's unique in the fact that he does try to make horror in the classic sense when still is able to, to bring in uh, a lot of these current CGI effects and, and the different makeups and, and costumes that they use for his characters. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that as and I know that Hollywood's looking to him uh, for a number of different horror remakes. I think he's the guy that can kind of lead the future and still keep a keen eye on the past. Yeah, similarly, Peter Jackson also has that sense of, uh, you know, he, he got more grandiose than, you know, Gra- Guillermo del Toro has this ability to use all these tools but still make a very small film. Pan's Labyrinth, um, you know, which was intricate, but was a very small little movie, really. Um, well, Peter Jackson is going, obviously, the other way with, you know, over the top with King Kong and, 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 and the Ring trilogy. But um, the way they're using these tools is interesting because it's easy to abuse them. 
and um, CGI to me should be just like an accent and not the whole whole thing. Well, I think sometimes, it, it, even at the exorbitant cost of CGI and, and what it costs to produce, it's cheaper than hiring Jim Carrey or Adam Sandler and giving them $20 million for a potential bomb. That's probably true. I was watching uh, 10,000 B.C. last week, which oh. I had heard horrible things about. And I don't know, it just it was, it was okay. It was like, you know, an enjoyable 90 minutes. But the whole thing was, you know, a cartoon, really. I, I mean, I, I, I did like it when I got it because uh, – I had just gotten a high def TV and a, and a yeah, upconvert I mean, DVD player, so that was the watch. yeah that was the interest level for me. But you know, other than that, and I was saying to to these guys earlier, you know, I just got Poltergeist on on Blu-ray because it's it's something it's my favorite horror film of all time. It's probably my favorite film of all time, and I was expecting to have you know all these extra options and all these new new bells and whistles with it, and, and instead they haven't even put back in the Pizza Hut scene that's been deleted for 25 years. So, I mean, is that kind of like a, the downside to some of these films getting released is you're expecting to find so much more, and, you know, you're lucky if you just get a complete print of the movie? Yeah, it, you know, just rushing out a film just to, to, to take advantage of the format, you know, isn't enough. You know, you would think that if you're going to release a film on Blu-ray, it should be, you know, the definitive look at it. You know, I'm not much when it says, like, 12 hours of extras. I'm like, whoa, you know, I don't yeah. have 12 hours. But, you know, I would like to see the deleted scenes and, you know, have a commentary. And I mean, especially when you hear around a lot of these films, you know, legends that pop up surrounding the, the scenes that aren't in the film anymore or, or, you know, things that happened on set that you want to have addressed. And, of course, they put out Poltergeist. They don't bother to mention the Poltergeist curse. They don't talk about that. I mean, I kind of understand where they're coming from with that, but it's it's part of the pop culture around that film. Poltergeist was really a fantastic film. When it came out, I mean, people were so horrified that they, like, stood up in their seats. It was just an amazing phenomenon, like Jaws and Star Wars at the time. And uh, it's been sort of relegated to a second-rate status, but it's one of the greatest horror films of all time, I think. Uh, to me, it's, it's, it's definitely probably the classic of our generation, you know, one and two with The Exorcist. Uh, but what people don't realize either is they, they tend to for, forget the fact that even though Steven Spielberg had a heavy, heavy hand in that film, you know, Toby Hooper is the name listed on the credits as the director. And, you know, you really shouldn't not expect to have chills and thrills when he's the guy behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, he directed Funhouse, which is uh, <laughs> also like it just brings a smile just to think about that movie. Just a crazy movie that was really wonderful. Um, I even liked his Invaders from Mars to, to, to a certain extent. Um, but that's one of the things that has never really been nailed down, how much how much of uh, Poltergeist was Spielberg and how much was Toby Hooper, much like the original thing in 1951, how much was, uh, I forget the <laughs> who was involved, but you know, there, there was some question about who actually directed that. One thing's for sure, that the remake was all John Carpenter. <laughs> that's for no, sure. No doubt about that, right down to the music. Uh -huh. Guy does everything. All right, well, uh, we're just about out of time, but we want to make sure that people do know exactly where to go for the for the voting. It's Rondo Award, no S at the end, dot right. com. RondoAward.com, um, and you can see the ballot there, and all you have to do is cut, copy and paste it or, or, or type out the, the winners, and you just email it to me at tarico dot, at aol.com. All the directions are there. Um, and you don't have to vote in every category. And if you just want to see what's going on in the field, uh, just take a look at the ballot. It's really amazing. And I think you'll, uh, for those who remember the old monster magazines, I think you'll be amazed by how many monster magazines are still out there. 
And it's, yeah, it's exactly. It shows you that this genre is still alive and thriving and that people have the dedication enough to put this ballad together. Do you do this all yourself or is it, is it a, a group? That- There's about 10 or 20 people who kind of advise me on certain categories. I'm not that good on like soundtracks and that kind of thing. We have some experts on that. Um, being a journalist, I am most interested in like articles and books. So, um, I do most of that myself, but we get a lot of input and, uh, it's still it's it's, it's a crazy thing. Well, I'm I'm glad that people such as yourself are keeping this alive and and hopefully you know as as more things come down the pike and as we look toward horror and this in this uncertain time to kind of be an escape for us. Hopefully, there's more quality coming down the line that can someday be considered classic horror as well. Well, we'll see with the new Wolfman. That'll be a good. Uh, uh, <laughs> we were talking about that with Mark Nelson. Is that that that's something that that you're big uh, big into seeing? Uh, there are good people behind it. I don't, you know, I'm sure it'll be very CGI and he'll be very ferocious and, you know. Uh, but if there's pathos there and there's a hint of a story, then, then I'm pretty sure they, okay. they don't even need to add any body hair to Benicio Del Toro to make him the wolf man. <laughs> That's true. Just get him on a Saturday. That's all. Yeah, just, just, uh, he's such a weird guy. I can only imagine where he's going with uh-huh. that. But, uh, and, and. Who knows where they'll go from there. If, if that movie's a success, what else they'll bring back. But I'm glad that people like yourself will keep an eye on the classics and make sure that people stay educated. Well, it's great to, that you had me on. All right. Thanks, David. We hope to talk to you real soon. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That does it for tonight's program. Uh, again, in the coming weeks with March Madness coming up here on WBSM, look to the Internet, WBSM.com, SpookySouthCoast.com. And that's where, if we're having a show, it'll be broadcasting. We'll, of course, update the website to let you know if it'll be happening. But the fact that you can go there, just click on your computer, uh, the player will load up in Young Stereo. And, uh, of course, Craig will keep the program on his site as well, SpookySouthCoast.blogspot.com, which we must uh, insist at this point before we go, that site is not affiliated with Spooky South Coast. It is run independently by our friend Craig. Uh, he, he does it as a favor to the listeners to keep them up to date. He records the shows, and he puts them up there for people uh, because we're not always that quick about it. But the opinions on that site do not necessarily reflect those of Spooky South Coast or its participants. We ran into a little trouble with a past guest. and A past guest, somebody that was a friend of theirs thought what was on that. Well, it's a whole convoluted story, Moniz. I'll tell you out, off the air. But the bottom line is it's Craig's site. He can say whatever he wants. We support his right to do that. It's just not reflective of what we believe, or probably is, but we just don't want to own up to it. But we <laughs> we do thank him for what he does, and, and he'll help make sure that everybody gets a copy of the program as well. He emailed me during the show to say he'd, he'd be glad to help with making sure that they get recorded if we don't have that ability while we're doing the streaming broadcast. So, Matt Costa, I'm sure you'll be back here getting a lesson in that sometime during the week, how to do it. And uh, I'll just come in and cruise in on Saturday night and do what I normally do. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. You, yeah. You're the monkey. All right. You're the production monkey. <laughs> Produce, monkey. <laughs> All right. So until next time, I'm Tim Weisberg. For Matt Moniz and Matt Costa, we want you all to stay spectacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although... In many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to be.